So Revelation chapter 7. The time has come for us to have the talk. The talk that I'm referring to is the biblical reference point that I'm using in preaching the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation shouldn't be that hard for us to understand. After all, it does come with an outline to let us know exactly what it is about. And that's given to us in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 which says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to his slaves, the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of of the prophecy, and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So it, the book of Revelation, is like the entirety of the Bible. That is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's given us to show the slaves of Jesus Christ, a certain subset within humanity, those that are called the slaves of Jesus Christ, the things that must soon take place. And then those slaves are given a promise. They will be blessed if we hear and if we keep these words because the time is near. And it's from this reference point that I read and preach the book of Revelation. So when we started chapter 6 and started reading about all the strange things that are spoken of there, I thought that I might then, we might then have to have the talk, but I waited, hoping that perhaps we wouldn't need to have the talk. But after reading the events as told to us in chapter 7 last week, I'm convinced that we must now have the talk. And for this reason, we're not going to be going in-depth concerning the verses from today. Instead, what we're going to use is we're going to use the verses from today, verses 9 through 17, as a catalyst, and even the background for the talk that we're going to have. So here are the verses from today. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come? And I said to them, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. 
And they washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His sanctuary. And He who sits on the throne will dwell over them. And they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them and guide them to springs of waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So these verses begin with, after these things, which lead us to believe that what is spoken of next chronologically follows the preceding verses, which spoke of the 144,000, those that were chosen, sealed, saints that are said to be 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, which followed the unveiling of the six which followed John being recognized. They're said to be the saints that have come out of the great tribulation. And they seem to be different from the saints that are under the altar. Chapter 6 are resting under the altar. These ones serve before the throne. And how you interpret these verses will be determined on what is called a worldview. And a worldview is how you think of things. And how you think of all things is all determined by a worldview. A worldview is the lens that you use to decide and judge everything in life and in the world by. So what I'm going to do is I'm some basic information on true statements and even appeals to you. But in the end, you are going to be the one that is going to have to determine my art to make, and then you're going to have to make your own judgment the book of Revelation. I'll list the other ways of viewing the Bible. There are four of them. We'll tell you how they view the book of the Bible. But I'm going to spend most amount of time telling you why I view the book of Revelation and the Bible the way that I do. Again, there's four basic, basic ways of interpreting the book of Revelation. The first is what's called the preterite. and the destruction of the temple. Babylon represents the nation. Compelling historical facts surrounding the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 that do tie in with this book. But if this book was actually a history, then it would be basically irrelevant to anyone and everyone living past the first century. And it would also ignore the promises made in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. The second view is called the historist. 
they are the ones that say that the seals, the trumpets, the bowl judgments, these are pictures of a successive church age, a history of the church age, if you will. They say that the book of, of Revelation describes a specific set of historical events, the collapse of the Roman Empire, the corruption of the papacy, the Reformation, and the second coming has been eminent since the Reformation. And again, there's issues with this type of reading as it is completely irrelevant for those churches that are spoken of in chapters 2 and 3. And even the churches that are not found or located in the Western world. And then there's the futurist. They hold that the entirety of the book of Revelation after chapter 3 happens all in the future. This is how the left behind guys view this book. They hold to a dispensational understanding of the Bible. And they take the symbolism of the book of Revelation very literal, very serious, which is why the year 1948 is so important to them. Because 1948 was the year that Israel once again became a nation. And they are just pining for that temple to rebuild in order that Christ can, can, can then rapture the church up. And that all the events as described after chapter 4 can then begin as we sit in heaven on a seven-year honeymoon until Christ comes back to reign for a thousand years with us. But at the end of the thousand years, the humans on earth will somehow just then rebel again. Satan will be set loose. Armageddon happens. The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Literally, a city floating down from the sky. And then we all literally live happily ever after. Which then brings me to the last way of viewing the book of Revelation. The one that I believe is the most faithful and biblical. So what I'm going to be doing now is building my case, as it were, as to why I read and understand the book of Revelation as I do, and even why I'm admonishing you to view it in this way as well. And for, must, for me to be able to do that, first we have to start at a baseline. And that baseline is this. We must all be fully convinced of truth. That's a true statement. And this is the first thing that we have to be convinced of, that there are absolute truths, that night is different than day, that summer is different than winter, that a man is different than a woman, and that there is a God that is different than man. That there are truths. This is a fundamental tenet of Christianity. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. He says we're sanctified by truth and his word is truth. And again, that is a truth statement. But what is his word? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. John chapter 1, 1 through 5. So Jesus 
But that John 17 verse I just quoted also said, sanctify them by your truth. So what is truth? I mean, this is the question that was posed by Herod when Christ stood before him. Christ answered that question as well. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. Jesus said that there are truths and that his word is truth and that he is both the word and the truth. And again, this is a truth statement. And if you've been around me for any length of time, you know I make truth statements. Some people don't like that. But I'm going to compel you that you should make truth statements as well. And I do this because of what we're told in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, where we're told there every person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And again, in context, Paul is dealing with the issue of steaming one day over another and eating meat sacrificed to idol. But what he is telling us there is that you must not only have an opinion on things concerning God, but these things must matter to you. Matter enough that you're fully convinced in your own mind concerning them. Again, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. You can't be wishy-washy about the things of the Lord. God says that you are to know Him and even know about Him. And He wants us to be fully convinced concerning Him and all the things around Him. So much so that earlier in human history, God, through another one of His prophets, said this to His people. He told His people in Deuteronomy 8, 5, you shall know in your heart that Yahweh your God was, was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. And what God is telling his people there is that they were to know as truth exactly why they just spent the last 40 years as they did. That they must have a biblically correct worldview. And again, Jesus another time said that those that are his will receive the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him. But he goes on, he says, you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. John 14, 17. Peter understood this concept which is why he wrote, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been fully strengthened in the truth which is present with you. 2 Peter 1.12 You cannot be reminded of something you don't know. And as a Christian, as a blood-bought saint, you're supposed to know the Lord. Finally, in proving that God has said that you must have a biblical worldview based upon truth, we have Hebrews 11.6. There, we're told, without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who draws near to God, that means a saint, must believe that He is, and he must believe that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And the only way that you can do that is if you know Him. 
God says that he's supposed to matter to you. And that you will actually engage. And that he will matter enough for you to be convinced about him and then stand on truth. And you're thinking, though, but how does this all work? How can we know? How can we know how to seek him? Jesus told us. He said to those Jews who had believed him, and back in John, he says, If you abide in my word, then you are my truly, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John chapter 1, verses 31 through 32. So you must be born again, and then you must abide in his word. And that word abide, that's a verb, meaning that it's active, it's not passive. Abide means to live in. To have is your only rule and measuring stick in life. Remember earlier when Christ said that he's going to give you the spirit, the, who the world can't know, but you know because he abides with you? The same word, abide, how the spirit abides with us is how we are supposed to abide in him. And that's a true statement. And whether or not you know it, I just made an appeal to you. And I did so because I'm desiring to influence you. That may be shocking to you. But it shouldn't be. Because everything in life, everything and everyone that you will encounter in life is making an appeal to you. They are, it is, trying to influence you. Trying to influence you in your biblical or in your worldview and how you view things in life. Hear me on this again, saints. Everything and everyone, they are all an influence on your life. And there is nothing, nothing morally neutral in this world. It is either God-glorifying or it's not. They and it, whatever it is or they are, they are either God-glorifying or they're not. The appeal that I just made to you that's based off of logic, it's called a logical appeal. I use truth, I use logic to try to influence and persuade you. There's two other means to make an appeal. One is from ethics, where a person or entity will try to get you to think or act as they do based off of cultural standards or ethics. And the last appeal is the emotional appeal, where the speaker or entity will try to influence you based off of how you feel. Think of the SPCA commercials where they show the puppies in cages with that soft music playing. That is an emotional appeal. They appeal your emotions. Most commercials, matter of fact, all commercials, and most entertainment, they use this last appeal to influence you. Is it effective? They think so. They spend billions of dollars every year to advertise to make appeals to you. But when you, as a Christian, when you think and when you read the Bible, you must have, and this is a true statement, you must have a Christian and a biblical worldview. 
This may seem like a no-brainer as you sit there. But as just what has been uh, we've seen recently proven in the controversy over women and the biblical role of elders, it's not necessarily always the case. But before we can judge anyone else, and quite honestly, we shouldn't be concerned so much about how other people view the biblical, they have what biblical worldview they have and how they judge the Bible or not. We need to be about where we stand on the Bible. Do we hold to sola scriptura? Is the Bible the world the ultimate? Because it's not without irony that the book of Revelation is the last book at the back of the Bible. And it's the last book to be penned. And it is the litmus test used to determine how a person reads the Bible. Once again, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is a complete synopsis his interaction, his recreation, and all that is. And this is the biblical worldview that I'm convinced is the meaning of this book. And this is how I read the book of Revelation, how I view the book of Revelation. And this is the last of the four views of how to read the book of Revelation. Historically, it's been called the redemptive, historical, and idealist view. It's how it's been understood by most theologians up until the early 1800s when dispensationalism came in, became in vogue. I prefer, though, a different term, one that I've coined. I call it the covenantal, redemptive, historical view. And the reason is simple. Is it because it follows a Christian, biblical worldview? And because view is covenantal. I understand that the promises made to Israel were made to the true Israel of God, not primarily an ethnic people. This is the truth that is told to us in Revelation 5.9, where we read, because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood the nation Israel, people from every tribe, and tongue, and people, and nation. God has one salvation plan for all humanity. And the true church has always been the true Israel. The church was within that physical nation Israel, just as it is now within this church. And God has determined to work in a very specific way with humanity. He doesn't work but he has made covenants. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And the covenants of God are much like the Bible itself and much like the book of Revelation in that they are, as the Bible is, a revelation of Jesus Christ. There are six covenants that God has made with man. The first was with Adam, and it's found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. And since it is foundational and even explanatory for the covenantal, redemptive, historical way of viewing the Bible, I'm going to read it to you. 
Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has the fruit of the tree-yielding seed. It shall be for food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. All the other covenants, they flow out of this one. And it's in this covenant that God makes Adam co-heir, region over all of creation, gives Adam one rule, simply one rule that he must follow. And that's found in chapter 2. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we're told, Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verses 16-17. through 17. Our side of the covenant that God made with us. And as we know, Adam broke this covenant when he esteemed equality with God a thing to be grasped, thereby transferring himself and all creation from the family of God into the family of the one that had promised equality to him. And that wasn't a shock to God. God knew that was going to happen. And we can know this. That is a true statement. We can know this. This is a biblical truth statement because of what we're told in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, Satan, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who had been slain. And this then sets the stage for the remaining five covenants. And the next four are given to demonstrate that God chooses people. People do not choose God. He chose Noah out of all the millions of people that lived in that generation. He chose Noah and his family for no specific reason other than what we're told in Genesis 6-8. Because Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And you fast forward a thousand years and God once again chooses a man, Abram, as his own, as told to us in Genesis 12, verses 1-3. through That was the establishing of what we know as the ethnic people of Israel and the nation of Israel. But again, as we're told in Romans 9-6, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Again, I want to reiterate, it's not unfair it's not unkind, it's not even unwise to understand that the covenants and the promises made to Israel, they are not intended to an ethnic people. They're intended to a redeemed, blood-bought people. God chooses people and He makes covenants. 
The next covenant was again to a specific man that God chose, Moses, Exodus chapter 3. Fourth covenant was with another chosen man, 1 Samuel 16, which brings us to the final covenant, the one that was promised to the true Israel back in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, which God promised again to the Israel of God. And since it is true, the true Israel of God. It's not without irony that it's also found in Hebrews chapter 8. Promise to the church. When he said, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel, Judah. Others in the day which I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land. My but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The final, the ultimate covenant, which all the other covenants are built off of, the one that Jesus revealed to us in Matthew 26, 28, when he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The author of Hebrews in his revelation of Jesus Christ, spoke of this covenant. In fact, the book of Hebrews is all of this covenant. The who and the why of it. In chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, he spoke of the covenant in this manner. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has keep. And in chapter 13 of Hebrews, we're told that this last covenant is actually the first covenant. Because there we read, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Again, when were we saved? From before the foundation of the world. I want us to understand once again why this covenant was actually necessary. Because when Adam, was when Adam was created in the image of God and the first covenant was made, God made promises to it in and had only one stipulation from Adam. Remain in the perfect state in which you had been created. And we need to understand that Adam saw Jesus face to face. It was with Jesus that he walked in the cool of the day with him. He knew that he had been created by him. He knew that the garden was a gift from him. He knew that his wife was a gift from him. And still, when Satan just hinted that you could be the same as Jesus, all you have to do is disobey. He reached out his hand, deemed of all good. 
And outside of Christ, we would have done the same thing. And every covenant after the first one had then to be filled with blood, including that last one. That last covenant is sealed in blood, but not the blood of Adam. sealed in the blood of the perfect, sinless man, Jesus. But again, what is it that the blood of Christ purchased? Ephesians 1.7 tells us, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of this grace. The Bible is not a telling of God creating perfection and then a surprise attack on that perfection in which God had, had then had to put in a rescue operation, a plan B to try to save as many willing people as He could. His son was not the last helicopter out of Saigon. It wasn't the last C-17 Globemaster III out of Afghanistan. We're told in Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. The redemption of some it's always been plan A of God. Before he said, let there be light. The fall of wasn't a surprise. The sin of Adam wasn't a surprise either. In fact, both of these were the, mess, the, needs, the means necessary for the greatest demonstration of the holiness of God and the greatest amount of glory being given him. The glory that is due his name had to create perfection. He had to allow perfection to fall and then to demonstrate His love, His grace, His mercy, and His wrath to the fullest possible extent in and through and even on His beloved Son. And this is the form and the flow of the Bible and the book of Revelation as well. It is covenantal. It is redemptive. Chapter 1, introductory chapter, chapter, it's given to us to give us the theme and the form of this revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 then introduce us to the true Israel of God, the church. And then beginning in chapter 4, we are given a heavenly perspective of life on earth. How it has been viewed through the covenantal, redemptive, and historical lens from God's perspective down. The book of Revelation is a historical book. It speaks of the history of all things. It begins in the eternal, before time in chapter 1, speaking of God. Chapters 2 and 3, sub-chapters of this covenantal, redemptive history of all things, pointing again to that most important organism that God has ever created, the one that is both covenantal and redemptive, the church. And then chapter 4 takes the throne of God. Chapters 5-20 through 20 are the covenantal, redemptive, historical telling of the church age. Chapters 21 and 22 are the consummation of the covenantal, redemptive, historical God to His glory and His second coming and then the recreation of all things. So the question that we must ask ourselves though concerning the book of Revelation as we are looking at these things, is this. 
How are we meant, how are we supposed to understand what is written here in it? Are these things literal? Or are they symbolic? I'm convinced that if you take the Bible on whole, you will understand that the things that are said within the book of Revelation are historical, yes, but they're symbolic. They are like many of the things that we're told within the Bible. And they're given to us in symbolism, such as the lampstands being symbols for the church. It's told to us in chapter 1, verse 20. Now, again, as Christians, we all believe that the first five books of the Bible, that they are historically accurate, right? I mean, we all... that everything that is given to us in the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, we actually believe the creation week story, the account, right? The worldwide flood, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of Korah and his families by the earth swallowing them up is told to us in Numbers 16.32. That's all historically accurate telling of truth. And so is the first time that we're told of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, Genesis 3.15, where we're told, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. How we read that single verse, how we read that verse and understand that verse is how we are to read and understand the book of Revelation. Because that verse is literal concerning the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. Oh, by the way, do you realize who that verse is actually talking about when it says the seed of Satan? Satan is just standing right there. He's the one that Jesus is actually talking to. So who is he talking about when he says the seed? It's you. It's me. It's every person that has lived since the sin of Adam. But who do we know is the seed of the woman? Who does that literally speak of? It's Jesus Christ. And then we read the rest of that verse symbolically. The bruising of the heel of the head that speaks symbolically of the cutting off of the head of the snake. And that happens when Satan and all of those that are his are cast into hell for all eternity. The bruising of the heel, the seed of the woman, symbolic for the literal murder of the perfect Son of God. And it's also symbolic in the literal bruising of the heel of Christ, in the, per- in the persecution of the church that happens throughout the church age. And we can know that what is told to us in Revelation, that these things are symbolic because of what we're told in verse 1 of chapter 1. There's a single verb in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation that was given to us for a specific reason. Here's chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. Now, I understand that I'm going a long way around to prove a point, but it's important that you understand 
that the things that are written in the book of Revelation, that they are given to us simply, we are not supposed to take them literally. So what I just read to you from verse, chapter 1, verse 1, I read to you from the legacy standard. And the, ver- um, the verb that we're focusing on is translated there as sending. SV has that verb rendered as to make known. The King James has it rendered as signify. The newest New American Standard Version has it as he sent and communicated it. And the word in the Greek that is used there is only used three other times in the New Testament. And again, these are specific reasons. There are specific reasons that specific words are used in the Bible. I'm going to read you the other three times that that one word is used. John chapter 12, verse 33 is the first one. But he was saying this. There's that verb again. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. So the things that preceded that verse, they are symbolic. They are speaking about the manner in which Christ would die. Second time that it's used, again in John chapter, or John chapter 18, verse 32. There we read, in order that the word of Jesus, which he spoke, would be fulfilled, here's the verb, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. That time, the verse is speaking of Jesus before Pilate. When Pilate told the Jews, you take Jesus and you judge him, I find nothing wrong with him. And they came back and they said, no. We have a law, and for and that law, he should die. Christ had to die on the cross. The same word that's used the last time, John chapter 21, verse 19. Now this he said, here's that verb, signifying by what kind of death he would bring glory to God. And then he said to them, follow me. John chapter 18 verse was used to signify the type of death that Jesus would die. John chapter 21, that verse is speaking about the death that Peter would die. And what Jesus is saying is that what he said to Peter in verse 18, you remember verse 18, it always seems kind of weird for us. We can't really grasp what he's saying, that it's symbolic. And this is what he said. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Again, if you read that verse literally, never going to make sense to you. But when we read it symbolically, we understand that the statement that Jesus is making to Peter is symbolically telling Peter how he will live the rest of his life and how ultimately he would die. In all those verses, the things that are spoken of as having happened, all happened as signs or to signify something. There's one old commentator that that said this about this verse. He said, Jesus Christ signified or made known by symbol and figure the things which must come to pass. C.H. Spurgeon said something about this verse that I think is very relevant And it's important for us to hear. He said, The Lord does not reveal his secret to uncongenial minds. That's old English way of saying unregenerate minds. He that will do his will shall know of the doctrine 
and he shall know all secret things, period. And you're thinking, what? But listen how what Spurgeon said after that. He said, oh, if we lived nearer to God, if we walked more in the love of Christ, how much more we might know and see. Or if we didn't see visions, yet there were inward perceptions of the heart which God would grant us if we just lived more in the light of His countenance. And finally, there is a Greek word meaning to make known. And yet God chose the one that means to signify in chapter 1 of Revelation. Everything that John sees when he told, come up here in chapter 4, everything that he speaks of is seeing after that. It's just like the description that he gives to us in chapter 1 of Revelation. Think about the, the description of Jesus that he gives us in chapter 1 of Revelation. And again in chapter 4 of Revelation. It's symbolic. Christ didn't look like that. And it's all told to a specific subset of humanity. His slaves. as told to us in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's told to us in order that we know Things that must soon happen. These symbols, these are all symbolic things and events that happened during the church age. And again, the church is the most important organism created by God. Not individually saved people. And not me. The church is. That's why in chapters 2 and 3, God speaks to churches about their actions. He doesn't speak to individuals about your actions. He speaks to churches because churches, the church is the most important organism in our life. We don't understand that. And because of that, we don't understand that everything from following from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 20, is given to us because the church is important to Christ, important to God. And He knows what we're going to face. And it's given to us to demonstrate to all the redeemed God the absolute truth that no matter what happens in this life, you are eternally secure in Him. And to demonstrate to us exactly what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. And the events that are spoken of beginning in chapter 1, they are even redemptive. The new Jerusalem that is spoken of is coming down out of heaven from God. It's not an actual city. It's the church as well. Only there we are in our glory. We should never be concerned because of the symbolic nature of the given to us in the book of Revelation. Because we are supposed to find comfort in this symbolism. And in fact, we do find comfort in symbolism. To prove that to you. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Really quick. 
We're going to be looking in Isaiah chapter 53 because I want it's important for us to understand how we can and how we have actually been taught to get comfort from symbolism and how we're supposed to then apply that as we read through the book of, of Revelation. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? It's you. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. That's symbolic language. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, historically accurate, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one whom, from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him, historically accurate. Surely he, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows carried, historically accurate. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then he goes back to symbolic. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Historically accurate. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Symbolic. Like a sheep that is silent before his shears. Mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That for the transgression of my people, striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned with the wicked man. Yet he was with the rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Historically accurate. Putting him to grief. If you would, place his soul as a guilt offering, and he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many. And he will divide the spoil with the strong. Symbolic. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. The book of Revelation is supposed to be read, and it's supposed to be understood through the covenants of God, through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, and through the demonstration of God's faithfulness to his glory in the history of the world 
and the coming judgment on those who are willful traitors of the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we journey through the symbolic telling of the redemptive history of the ages, may we continue to keep this in mind. May we not get lost in the weeds of the symbolic images presented to us as so many have in our age. And may we always hold to the truth that the final chapter of this book, it is not figurative. It is not symbolic. It is literal. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is how I read the book of Revelation. And this is how I preach the book of Revelation. And I pray that every one of you will discard your dispensational eyes as you read through this book and you understand that all the things that are spoken of there are spoken of because Christ loves the church. And you are blessed if you have been made part of his church. Let's pray.